Hello there. On today's episode of the Nerd by Word, we will be sharing our greatest hopes for the upcoming Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Will this show drive the story forward or simply sink in the nostalgia? The Byword begins now. Welcome to the desert sands of Tatooine, at least it feels that way at the moment. On today's episode of the Nerd by Word podcast, Dave and I will be casting our new hopes into the Force for the upcoming series, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, this episode will be releasing just a few days before the Disney Plus premiere, so we nailed the timing of this. The Kessel Run has nothing on us, but more on that in a second. First, let's head to Coruscant for... Dave, um, we've got confirmation on an earlier nerd news story. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm, I'm again unsure how to feel about this. It's not exactly what I anticipated. So it appears, according to Variety, that a new Daredevil series is moving forward at Disney Plus, and uh, Variety had the exclusive scoop that Matt Corman and Chris Ord are attached to write and executive produce this new Daredevil series. So that means, first of all, that the -the behind-the-scenes folks involved with the Netflix run of Daredevil are out and they are bringing in fresh blood. There isn't clear confirmation in this news story that Charlie Cox is going to be back, but the uh, general assumption seems to be that since both he and Vincent D'Onofrio, since they've both made appearances in recent MCU projects, that they are both currently expected to return. Now, what makes this interesting is uh, when you start digging into the uh, background of the two new writers slash showrunners. And here we have Corman and Ord, who uh, have worked on NBC dramas The Enemy Within and The Brave, as well as Containment at the CW. And I will freely admit I have not watched any of those particular shows. However, I did watch uh, probably the thing that they are most famous for, and that is Covert Affairs, a a series starring Piper Parabo and Christopher Gorham at um, USA Network back in their uh, character-driven show age that also included stuff like Psych and Monk. Uh, My wife was a very big fan of Covert Affairs, and I ended up watching the whole series. And for what it was, Covert Affairs was extremely uh, enjoyable. However, I find myself struggling a little bit with seeing the Covert Affairs team pulling off a Daredevil series that will rival what has been done uh, in the past three seasons at Netflix. There's also some trepidation going around among the fandom already of whether a Disney Plus uh, show will be as gritty as the previous shows, with some uh, suggesting that perhaps... Uh, the Disney Plus show will take a page out of, out of Mark Wade's run on the character, which was a, an attempt to kind of lighten the character up a little bit. Uh, to, to some success, I will say, I, I really enjoyed Mark Wade's run, although there seems to be something about Daredevil that makes him you know, kind of in the class of Spider-Man, where you know people seem to like him most when he suffers. Um I'm, I'm interested in what they do with this and, and what kind of, you know, what, what sort of the overall pitches for this new Daredevil show, if it's going to be in continuity with the previous show, if it's going to be a, a reboot, a soft reboot, you know, what 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 is their sort of master pitch for this whole thing? What is going to be their approach? Um, a little, a little, you know, concerned about the covert affairs guys trying to do Daredevil, but... Um, I, I remain hopeful since Charlie Cox is attached. I'm a big fan of his portrayal of Matt Murdock. So, you know, here, here's hoping that this turns out. What do you think, Chris? First and foremost, uh, you just dropped two of my all-time favorite shows in Monk and Psych. So let's just take a moment to bask in, in how awesome truly USA and underrated it was at that time. But yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm growing increasingly jaded and fatigued at the doomsday fandom 
of this is never going to be anything close to as good as the Netflix thing, da 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 da, all this stuff. And I, I feel along the same lines. You're like, I, we don't know what this is. It's in the very early stages. I would, you, I'd be hard pressed to believe that anybody else other than Charlie Cox is going to be in this role. I don't think they would pursue something like this if that wasn't the case. And in Charlie, I trust. I mean, like that is one of one of the the greatest performances right up there with RDJ's Iron Man, Chris Evans is Captain America of, of whatever we've seen in a superhero media portrayal. Uh, I absolutely love him in the role of the character and whatever, you know, environment they surround him with, I think he's good enough to carry it. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm extremely hopeful for this, but like you said, it's in the very early stages. So like, let's take a wait and see approach before we're, you know, jumping out the window. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, just just knowing a little bit about the history of the guys that you know are running the show, it's covered affairs. I don't know if you ever watched it, Chris. It was sort of an interesting show in that it was sort of you know spy, a sort of a spy drama, but it was mm-hmm. very light and fluffy, and there was a lot of like flirtatious undertones going on on during various assignments. And I just you know, it's a very it's tonally very very far removed right. from a daredevil now again i've not seen any of their recent works and and you know maybe some of that stuff uh you know kind of struck a chord with with the execs that they're the right people for this job but only knowing them from having you know done covert affairs it seems like a very interesting choice yeah for sure and and you know a lot of people are making much ado about the content ratings of things that go up on disney plus but i mean like they did just add all those netflix shows into in the in so much that they you know added different parental controls to Disney Plus that did not exist before those shows, so it'd be interesting to watch that develop. Oh, I totally agree, Chris. All right, so uh, you are getting us uh, into the Star Wars universe before our big talk with your new story. What you got, Chris? Yeah, for sure. So, in advance of the release of this Kenobi series on Disney Plus, Vanity Fair had a massive piece on the state of the Star Wars franchise which included interviews from the stars themselves, previews of what's to come, and looks back uh, on recent goings-on. Here are a few of the quick hits on a massive article that's definitely worth a read. Uh, More details were given surrounding Leslie Headland's project The Acolyte. The series will be set a century before the events of The Phantom Menace. Headland, who has received critical acclaim for her co-creation of Netflix's smash hit Russian Doll, said in the piece, quote, A lot of those characters from the Skywalker saga haven't even been born yet. We're taking a look at the political and personal and spiritual things that came up in a time period we don't know much about. My question when watching The Phantom Menace was always like, well, how did things get to this point? How did we get to a point where a Sith Lord can infiltrate the Senate and none of the Jedi pick up on it? Like, what went wrong? What are the scenarios that led to this moment? End quote. Director John Watts a favorite of the nerd news segment is slated to head up a series that is said to be inspired by the Amblin entertainment coming of age films of the 1980s Andor, the series surrounding Diego Luna's popular rogue one character is set to release on Disney plus later this summer, which is much sooner than a lot of fans anticipated. The third series, uh, third season of the Mandalorian will release either late this year or early 2023, Ahsoka with Rosario Dawson will release sometime in 2023. But perhaps the biggest headline grabber was Lucasfilm president uh, Kathleen Kennedy expressing her regrets about recasting the roles of iconic characters like Han Solo, deeming it, quote, near impossible. Now, much has been made about everything surrounding Solo, a Star Wars story, but oversimplifying its underwhelming box office performance to the casting of Alden Ehrenreich, or this is blasphemy, mind you, Donald Glover, is laughably tone deaf, in my opinion. There are many reasons why Solo unperformed, wimpy fanboy reaction to The Last Jedi, firing the directors halfway through production, take your pick. We'll talk about this a great deal later in Nerd Commendations Day, but being this beholden to the wishes and desires of the worst parts of fandom is simply a bad business practice. Yeah, so I totally agree with this. I'm going to give you some quick hits uh, about some of the other stuff, but I really do want to dig into the Kathleen Kennedy comments. Uh, So the Acolyte, eh, we'll see. 
I want to see some more before I get excited about this. Uh, John Watts, he, capable director, uh, more interested in the approach of sort of this uh, Amblin Entertainment coming of age stuff because I was a sucker for that stuff being a child of the 80s. Um, uh, Ahsoka, anything to do with that show, I'm excited for. I can't wait to see it. Um, so let's go ahead and dig into this Kathleen Kennedy thing. Solo is a good movie. Is it a great movie? Well, certainly not. But considering how much behind-the-scenes turmoil there was in the making of this movie, to the point where, as you mentioned, they you know replaced directors halfway through production, um, it is actually quite impressive that it turned out as well as it did. And none of the failures of that move of the movie's box office really should be pinned at the recasting. In fact. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I, I love Luke Skywalker, but I cannot stand Uncanny Valley Luke. I cannot. I, I, I cannot handle it. it. It's awful. It's 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 so wrong. It, it's, it's, it doesn't work. It is so Uncanny Valley. No matter how good the CG is, there's just something slightly off about it. We are not to the point where we can you know, generate in a computer something that's perfectly photorealistic that does not look weird to the human brain. It just does not work. It does not fool you know, from the disastrous, you know, Tarkin special effect in, in Rogue One all the way now to, to Luke Skywalker in, in The Mandalorian and in The Book of Boba Fett. You know, have there have there been improvements? Well, certainly. But now we're also to the point where we're even like computer generating, you know, like the voice, which leads to an incredibly stilted sort of thing. At some point, you have to ask yourself as a as a creator of content, what do you want? Do you have a story to tell with a character or do you want that character just to visually stand there and appear? If you have a story to tell with a character, you need an actor. You need a life person that delivers a performance um, otherwise it is not going to be believable it's just plain and simple even even video games know this to a certain extent and we forgive a lot of stuff in video games because it is you know all of a cloth it is all you know a video game you don't you're not taking a video game character and trying to plop them into the real world um although that seems what they're trying to do with she-hulk regrettably oh Bless that poor show. Um, the point here is very simply that it, it's not working. And recasting is a much, much, much better way to go. And, you know, anybody who says that Donald Glover's recast was a bad recast, you know, they can go suck it. Like, that's just ridiculous. Perfect Lando Krillerizian, mm -hmm. wonderfully performed. And, and Alden Ehrenreich was a, a passable solo, and I would have liked to see him grow into the role and have another shot at it, whether that's uh, in a Disney Plus show or whether that's in a sequel. I really don't care. I would have liked to see more of this young Han Solo. That was perfectly fine. I think the bigger problem is that they were trying to push out way too much content way too quickly mm -hmm. at the time. I mean, Solo came out like what within within a year of uh, uh, of the Last Jedi or so. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, Star Wars movies used to come out what every three years. If you try to pop one an, a new movie in theaters every year, you are going to oversaturate the market, and I think that more than anything really kicked Solo's butt. Again, was it the greatest movie? Well, certainly not. But which Star Wars movie has ever been, let's be honest, an Oscar contender? They're all a little hokey and goofy, and that's one of the reasons why we love them. Um, so, yeah, I just, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in Nerd Commendations because I really want to talk about, you know, the the route that, that uh, Trek has taken in comparison to Star Wars. I think, as crazy as this is to say, I think Star Wars could learn a lot from Trek in that regard. Yeah, and and uh, I don't want to neglect to mention those original directors that they fired, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, went on to create an Oscar-winning film, my favorite movie of all time, Into the Spider-Verse. So, uh, yikes. Yeah, and I think it goes back to, um, you know, this whole notion of... of like creator control and and clear clear communication between the studio and the directors. It was very very clear that they were you know trying to make a, a movie that was a little more humorous. Um, and apparently, like I don't know if like Lucasfilm felt disrespected by it being so funny or something, and it needs to be more serious. And I don't know, but I, I think. <sighs> If any character from the original trilogy lends itself to something that's like a lighthearted romp, I think it is it's Han Solo. I mean, you know, 
there's not much you can do with a, a young Luke story. Kid was stuck on Tatooine this whole time. And and Leia was like inducted very early on into like being a you know a politician and stuff. So not exactly rip roaring there either. But if you're looking for a good lighthearted romp, like you know sp- space orphan going nuts, it's like about as good as you're going to get for a setup. So I don't know, man. I just I like Solo, it, and I like the idea of recasting iconic roles if you're willing, you know, to do the work of getting you know the right actor and you have a good story. A recast is fine, and I, I want to say this too: is in in a day and age where third acts of a film usually are underwhelming and don't stick the landing, Solo has one of the best third acts. Like it is really, really good. Probably the strength of the film is that final third. Oh, I'll agree with that. Yeah, it's a great climax. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment for this week. When we come back from our first break, our new hopes for Kenobi. <laughs> All right, we return for the main segment today, this week's Byword. And in the much-steeped anticipation for the series Obi-Wan Kenobi, which will be releasing in just a few days on Disney+, Plus, we have each three hopes that we want to see in this series. Uh, We've waited a very long time for this, and as is customary for the format of our show, we have three things that we really want to see in this franchise. So Dave, what is the first hope that you have for Kenobi? Well, based on the most recent trailer, I think my first hope has already been dashed. I, I was really hoping for a very small, highly localized story, something that doesn't put Kenobi back out in the world, you know, so to speak. Um, it seems from the trailer that he's going traveling a lot, and there's multiple locations involved. And if we're really going off of the notion that he's been in hiding this whole time, then he probably shouldn't like emerge halfway through his hiding and be like, hello, here I am. I'm going to go back into hiding now. See you later. Um, so I was hoping for something really small scale. Even like, you know, some kind of like cat and mouse game between him and like a, an Inquisitor all on Tatooine. The Inquisitor is trying to find him and then, you know, stumbles on Luke. And you, you have this slow buildup between these two characters until there's like this big clash, you know. Um, and then just like punctuate that story with like flashbacks to his relationship with uh, with Anakin Skywalker. I think that would have been the show right there. I don't I don't think I would have needed like... And now we're going to Alderaan, and now we're going to go and have a big space battle. Like, if you have a Jedi in hiding and trying to keep a low profile, I think there are still really cool stories you can tell at a very, very small scale that would have satisfied fans that don't need, you know, uh, ginormous explosions every five minutes, I guess is what I'm saying. So I was hoping for sort of a small-scale stories, a story, but uh, increasingly seeing the trailers, it seems like that's not what we're going to be getting, Chris. Yeah, so in anticipation for this, I've been rewatching A New Hope just to see like, like what could this possibly be? And, you know, it's very difficult kind of going back and trying to pigeonhole uh, shoehorn stories like this, you know, that didn't really exist before. You know, very famously, the original trilogy, they kind of built the ship as they were, you know, in the air. So, um, you know, that's why we get, you know, uh, Leia and Luke kissing at the beginning of empire strikes back and then it's developed you know later in return of the jedi that they're siblings so you know we can joke about that and meme about that all you want but like that wasn't the original plan they were kind of just making it up as they go and so to go back you know 40 years later and kind of tell this story that that didn't exist before it's it's a really really tight needle to thread you know, so it'd be interesting to how they work this in here. And I'm, I'm, I'm nervous as well. that They're going to go to too big and it's going to be a mess. So uh, I, I honestly don't know what to expect. Well, the thing is, too, like we have certain things that are sort of, um, if not, you know, definite things that are set in stone, then at the very least strongly hinted at, you know, like. Um, I don't think they can have a big action set piece where, you know, Kenobi saves Luke Skywalker, for example, unless Luke is like knocked out or something because he is like in a new hope only familiar with him in the absolute vaguest of terms yeah very rumor based yeah very rumor based it's like oh that that old guy 
Yeah. And even like, um, even if there's been like the stuff about like a young Leia being cast, even if, you know, him and Leia interact with each other, even that should be fairly rudimentary because, you know, in, in her message in a new hope, she's not like, Hey, remember that one time you saved my butt? She's more like, Oh, you served my father well during the clone wars. Like it's not, it's not familiar. You know what I mean? So I'm afraid that they're going to maybe bend things a little too much because they want to have this big epic story. And I, I guess they just don't need that. I think I think there's room for a small-scale story in Star Wars. You don't have to go huge and epic. And I would have loved to see a pared-down sort of, you know, very, very personal, very small Kenobi story. But that doesn't seem to be what we're getting here. Yeah. All right, Chris, what is your first hope for Kenobi? I think my biggest thing coming into this is kind of the redemption story for um, Hayden Christensen. And I think that he received far too much flack for um, the prequel films. Um, and I do not lay the blame on him. So it, I'm, I'm very excited to see um, him come back and play this role once again, you know, and it's, it, it makes you a little bit emotional, like, hearing him in interviews talk about like he thought he was done, you know, when they put the mask on uh, and he fully became Darth Vader, he thought his time with the character was over. And so I'm very excited to see him return in the role. And um, so as a result, I hope they lean heavy into that Obi-Wan Anakin relationship. And, you know, um, Revenge of the Sith is far and away the best uh, of those prequel films and that's because we got the most between the two of them, but it still wasn't near enough. Um, and so, you know, as a big fan of the Clone Wars and even more Rebels series, I really hope that they lean into that relationship because we didn't get near enough in the in the the live action films previously. So I, I, I want that to mean more and I want that to, you know, really weigh heavily on the heart of, of Obi-Wan. Um, and so that's my my biggest hope overall for this entire series is seeing them interact on screen again. Yeah, see, this is interesting because, um, you know, ha- having Hayden return to the, the role is absolutely um, exciting. And it's at the right time, too, because, you know, there seems to have been a bit of a reevaluation of the prequels. Now, I'm, I'm not in that camp. Um, I, I'm still firmly in the camp of these are not good movies. That doesn't mean there aren't elements of them that I really appreciate it. Um, uh, obviously, Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi was one of those elements. Um, but I think the biggest sin that that particular trilogy committed was keeping um, Obi-Wan and Anakin apart as much as possible. If you look at the trajectory of their relationship in live action, now completely ignoring animation for a second. You know, in, in Phantom Menace, Obi-Wan is left behind on the ship so he's not even involved in like meeting uh, Anakin and like building a relationship with him and has hardly any interaction with him until the very, very end of the movie. And then in Attack of the Clones, they share sort of an action sequence um, and then they immediately are separated for the bulk of the movie until the climactic battle. And the most time, as you pointed out, that they really do spend with each other is in Revenge of the Sith, but part of that movie has to serve, you know, Um, the downfall of Anakin Skywalker and the birth of Darth Vader. So even there, a lot of those interactions are, you know, not, not exactly um, reflective of what they had been up to that point at, you know, that, that is one of many missed opportunities. Um, You know, and there's, there's an opportunity here, I think, to make up for some of that. I think so too. Um, Dave, what is your second hope for this film or excuse me, this series? Well, see, I will say that uh, I think this ties very, very strongly in with with your first point. I think what we really need here is we need we need flashbacks. I think this is one of those um, one of those things that has to be um, really personal. I think uh, to Obi Wan Kenobi, and it has to be something that delves into his mindset and his regrets, um, because we we got a sense, particularly in that little talk. Um, in Return of the Jedi on Dagobah between Luke and, you know, Force Ghost Kenobi, that he has a lot of regrets about what happened between between him and Anakin. Um, and that is really what needs to be explored here, is is that that sense of regret, him questioning himself, you know, what, what went wrong. And I think that naturally lends itself 
to some flashbacks so we can get some of the things in live action like the strong relationship between him uh, and uh, and Anakin Skywalker that we didn't get from the movies. We never really got to see their friendship, you know? Um, and then we can have, you know, flashbacks to moments where, you know, Kenobi fell short, you know, where he he was not the friend or the or the teacher that he should have been. And he's questioning himself, you know, is this ultimately my fault? Did I, you know... Did I take the chosen one and make and make him like the worst the worst Sith Lord that the that we've ever had? You know, like that 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 should be something he needs to ask himself. So I think the you know series of flashbacks, a to get into his mindset and b to fix some of those missed opportunities of showing you know the relationship between the two and also Obi Wan's shortcomings. You know what? I, it's really interesting. Um, I was thinking about the prequels, you know, the other day again, um, we, we had kind of talked a little bit about like our last time trying to fix them or something. And it's just really in, in, in passing on one of our recent episodes. And it got me thinking about them again. And it's very interesting how Obi-Wan um, changed uh, between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. Um, in Phantom Menace, there was something a little bit reckless about Qui-Gon Jinn. And and Obi Wan was sort of a straight laced dude, you know, and which was which was sort of a weird juxtaposition that the student was sort of the real straight laced by the book guy, and then you get to Attack of the Clones, and clearly something has changed in those you know years since uh, Phantom Menace, because you know here's Obi Wan like jumping out of a window to latch onto an assassination droid and flying through Coruscant, you know, like there's something there's something reckless about the guy. And he even mentions this, I think, to Yoda in Empire Strikes Back when they're watching Luke Skywalker leave. And Yoda says something like he's reckless and, and Obi-Wan says, I was too, if you remember. Yeah. And I think that, that's that's one of those really beautiful little consistent things. But like Kenobi sitting there then on Tatooine in his exile and like thinking, you know, was I too reckless? You know, did yeah. I did I teach the wrong lessons to Anakin? And then showing some of those things in flashback, I think you know, would, would be a really, really good thing here and, and would do it would go a long way to continue the the redemption arc of the prequels, I guess. I mean, I don't think I'll ever think that they're good movies, um, but I do think there were good things about them and with some changes they could have been great. Yeah, and, and I guess like I'm I'm interested to see the balance that they do with this. And again, this is one of the difficulties of threading this needle here. Um, how much do you do flashback stuff? And then how much do you do within the current events of the story? Because, you know, in rewatching A New Hope, like you are led to believe that Anakin slash Vader and Obi-Wan have not seen each other for a good deal of time. So I'm, I, you know, I hope they don't do too many ongoing things like on that current time period that the, that the series is told, because I think that could, you know, really kind of screw up what they originally had. You know, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not even sure that necessarily their exchange means in, in a new hope their exchange that that means that they've not seen each other since Revenge of the Sith. I mean the exchange is um something like when I left you I was but a learner but now I'm the master, you know? Like left you where, left you when? Like he did he technically leave him at all? Isn't that like Obi-Wan that left him a smoldering yeah. mess? So, you know, there there are various ways to read into that, I think. Um and maybe 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 this is an opportunity to flip that, you know? I mean, there yeah. seems to be very much a sense in that this show is going to be pretty not dark for a Star Wars movie, but certainly depressing like it's, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi at his lowest, you know? Yeah. And so so maybe he gets his butt kicked. Yeah. You know, maybe they will have a duel and he gets his butt kicked and then Vader literally leaves Obi-Wan Obi-Wan and thinks he's dead, like thinks he killed him. And then, you know, the the I left you thing might be like I left you for dead somewhere, you know? That yeah. might might be a way to twist that around. Like I don't think that necessarily precludes them meeting again. Although I think the bulk of the interactions between those two characters should be in flashback. All right, Chris, what is your second hope for Kenobi? Well, I think my most pleasant surprise um, coming out of the trailers um, was the Inquisitorial Squad. Um, so I'm very, very interested to see how this plays out. 
um, you know, one of the far and away best parts of, of the animated series is the introduction of these new menacing antagonists. So I'm particularly interested in in Rupert Friend's Grand Inquisitor and even more so in Moses Ingram's uh, Inquisitor Reva. Like she really sells it. I think she's far and away the thing that I'm most excited about with this series. Um, and, you know, it's a really hard, you know, a, a lot of intellectual properties struggle with creating worthwhile antagonists. And I'm really intrigued to see particularly her story because she really sells it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. The Inquisitors have popped up before in animation, correct? Yes. Now, was that in was that in Clone Wars or was that in Rebels? I I read I like watched the first the, the first couple of seasons of of Rebels. Rebels. Um, and I want to say and I want to say that there were, there was some Inquisitor stuff going on there, but I never knew much about them. They're like dark side force users, but they're not quite Sith. Is that what I'm gathering here? I, I think I think so because you know with the rule of two, there's there's not a lot of Sith out there. Um, so yeah, they are. Yeah, that would be rebels. Simply, you know, just going off timeline wise, because it's after Order sixty six, and it's they're sent out by the Emperor. There's this. They're this tight squad that he has to go execute the the remaining Jedi that survived uh, Order sixty six. So yeah, that would be rebels. Yeah, so I, I might have to revisit some of that ASAP uh, just to make sure that I'm up up on the characters. Yeah, they look very interesting. Um, of course, I'm always very hesitant about like Star Wars using loopholes to the rule of two to get more dark, you know, dark side force mm-hmm. users on the on the on on the mat. You know, plus there was always an indication uh, in the original trilogy trilogy that it was Vader personally that went around and hunted down and killed all the Jedi. You know, and and I think that from a character perspective is much more interesting than coming up with all these extra lightsaber you know twirlers if you will yeah um but i'm i'm still curious to see what they do with the characters in this show so i'm i'm here for it all right dave your final hope for this is is a great one And, and and one that you've been on for quite some time yeah, so I'm I'm a big believer that one of the great uh, underused characters, particularly in the prequels, is um, is Owen Lars. I I think like that character should have been much more involved. So you could have had a nice arc of like him slowly like coming to despise the Jedi and everything they stand for because you know what he witnesses or whatnot. I would have even said it would have been cool to have him like you know, as a pilot or something that's like friends with Obi-Wan or something and then see that friendship sour. And there would have been some some really interesting arcs there that could have potentially been explored. But as as they did, you know, he was basically a cameo at best. Now, seeing uh, Uncle Owen return for, uh, for Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, in the trailer made me very excited because what we need here is we need, we need some, some conflict that Obi-Wan cannot fix with a lightsaber or by throwing, you know, force powers around. And the animosity that comes at him from Owen Lars is exactly what this show needs. You know, they need to have interactions, you know, where where Obi-Wan wants to get closer to Luke, you know, and, and, and Owen is like, there is no way, you know, look what you did to his dad. You know, there's like, there's real... Um, potential for drama there that you know is exactly what these kinds of stories need. And I'm always a big believer. Is like what I always tell, say about Superman that if you have a character with with superpowers of some sense, which you know Jedi clearly do, then you need to continuously present them with problems that their powers cannot solve. That is the essence of good drama. That's when you see characters grow. They have to you know <clears throat> they have to operate at maximum capacity they have to find a way because they're <clears throat> even if it's a difficult way because there is no easy way and so the conflict uh between kenobi and uncle owen is really what i want to see play out and not just like one scene i want that to be like a mini arc in the show like you know this this growing dislike between the two men i just i want to see that happen i I think that's something the prequels robbed us of, and and this is an opportunity to put that back. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And like, and in, in, in revisiting a New Hope, it's 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 very present the animosity that they have for one another. the The shade is strong uh, in that in that back and forth. So um, there's a really great TikTok video that I shared on our social media page where you get that line uh, from the trailer where he's like, "Like you trained his father." 
And then like somebody does like a Obi-Wan Kenobi filter or something. And it's like, it's ironic that Uncle Owen can roast, but could not save himself from getting roasted. And then it shows the clip from A New Hope where his charred body is laying there in the sand. So, oh, oh, yeah. oh, that's, yeah. that's mean. That's mean. Yeah. I approve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that should be one of the driving forces between this because um, that's always a good storytelling device. When you have two parental or guardian like figures thinking that they both know what's best for the child. And then just that back and forth between them and like, uh, that 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 uh, that tug of war is always a good storytelling device, in my opinion. There's something else to the that you know has potential here, and that is maybe a little bit of a discussion about why exactly they didn't change Luke's name. Like, why mm-hmm. is he Luke Skywalker on on Tatooine, which is literally where his dad is from? Like, exactly. was Obi was was Obi Wan trying to use him as bait to try to lure out you know? Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, was he trying to get him to show up there so they can have a showdown? Like, what was the thinking behind that, considering Leia did not go by Leia Skywalker, you know? Like, what yeah. what, what actually was the thinking behind behind that particular choice? Um, I, I think that would be an interesting discussion to have, too. And really, the conflict between those two characters is built into the lore of the prequels. I mean, they even had decided at one point that Anakin was too old to train when he popped up at like, what, eight or nine years old. Like it's, it's, it's natural that Obi-Wan would want to try to get close to Luke very early on when he's a little kid to start training him. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think this is fertile ground for really interesting character development and drama. Luke Lars, it kind of rolls off the tongue. I like it. Um, yeah but but uh yeah i also is like really interesting like uh this just popped into my head too like the fact that he's on tattooing with him is he like casting like almost like a protection spell uh you know a la dumbledore that that you know that that keeps vader because like how in the world does vader not know on his home planet that his child is there like he he would have to be able to sense that in the force you would think so that that's an interesting thing to think about as well well, you also have to remember the very famous sand quote from Attack ah, of the Clones. Yes. And, and, I'm, and I'm only being partially facetious because it's actually internally consistent with the original trilogy. If you remember in A New Hope, when the, the droids escaped to Tatooine, he sent some stormtroopers down. But when they attack the uh, Hoth at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back, he's there he's personally. Right there. Yeah. Like, he's consistent, man. He don't like sand. Like he'll, <laughs> he'll do snow and ice, but he is not there for the sand, man. Especially when you're in a in you know an equipment like that, that life-saving equipment, it's a very tight, snug fit. You don't want to be getting sand in that stuff. Yeah, you better believe that. Gosh, can you imagine what his breathing sounds sounds like when he gets too much sand in the gears there? <laughs> All right, Chris, what's your final hope for Kenobi? Um, I don't need a lot of cameo queens. Uh, please, no overly interconnected stuff. You know, this has been. Um, the Mephisto of it all um, with the, the, the Marvel Disney plus series as, as, as a whole, and even some star Wars stuff. Um, you know, the book of Boba Fett was, was enjoyable overall, but I felt like it leaned on too much interconnectedness into the point where there were large swaths of that series that we didn't even see Boba Fett. So I hope, you know, going back to your small story, a tight, thing um one of the things that i enjoyed a lot about mood night is there were absolutely no interconnected mcu things like there are even reports that surfaced that the eternals were supposed to show up and the director of that um series really fought to keep it kind of a tight story with no over overly used interconnected universe type stuff so i hope that this is a, a neat and tight story and i i can't even think of a cameo that would make sense in this time period um, because it's not the same as like Mando or Boba Fett or anything like that. So I just hope that it's like we don't go gaga over stuff like that because it, it just really wouldn't make sense. And I can tell you that uh, there's there's I know there were hopes that Qui-Gon's Force Ghost would show up um, or that we might see Qui-Gon in a flashback. Although Liam Neeson seems to have shot down that thing because he said he's open to returning to Star Wars, but only on the big screen. So interesting. Although he, that might be misdirection, and he might show up. Um, other things that could show up. What what else could we see? We could we could potentially see uh, some kind of like 
hint at Ahsoka or something. Maybe they can like de-age Rosario Dawson or something for one of the flashbacks. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it it you know they will try anything these days in Star Wars. Yeah. Although I have to say that there would be something interesting in seeing live action Anakin actually interacting with her because that's something we've never seen. Um, well, he is Hayden Christensen is supposed to show up in Ahsoka, so I'm excited to see that. Yes. Um, and then, of course, I'm, I'm sure some of the animated characters from the Clone Wars cartoon. I know there was some talk about maybe one of the uh, one of the clone troopers showing up or something. Um, so I, I think there is potential for cameos. I'm sad to say, um, yeah. I, but I agree. I think the more they keep those two minimum, the better. The only time when a cameo really truly makes sense to me is when it's in service of the story. You yeah. know, like for example in. Uh, in Spider-Man No Way Home, having Doctor Strange, there makes a lot of sense when you're trying to tell a, a multiverse story, you know? Without without him and without that spell, that movie does not exist. So it's in service of the story, you know? So even if they have a cameo or two, as long as it is in service of the story and it furthers the plot, and it's not like, you know, the Book of Boba Fett where there's like a whole episode that's basically like episode, uh, I mean, season two and a half of The Mandalorian, which was a great episode, but it had no Boba Fett. Yeah, it wasn't the wrong show, right? Yeah. So as long as they, it, as long as they don't do something like that and they keep their eye on the ball, um, I don't mind a cameo as long as it's in service of the story. Yoda might be another one. I just thought of that. I really could live without that. Um, Same. And, and I'm going to be completely honest, and this is this is a horrible thing to say, maybe of me, but I have not enjoyed Yoda since he went CGI. Like that's, puppet that's consistent. Yoda. Yeah. Yeah, Puppet Yoda I love. I love him Empire Strikes Back. I like him, you know, his death scene in in, uh, in Return of the Jedi. I can even live with his Jedi Council appearance in, in Phantom Menace. But man, when he went CGI in Attack of the Clones so he can go full-on mad frog with lightsaber <laughs> hop, um, th- that's that's when me and Yoda parted ways with each other. I miss Puppet Yoda. Puppet speaking, Yoda supremacy. Speaking of his... His death scene is one of the greatest memes of all time, and you can understand this as as a father now. Um, that scene where um, your kid asks you so many questions that you just go to sleep and don't wake up. You get so tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that that is accurate. <laughs> all right, that wraps up our byword big talk for this week. Our hopes for Kenobi. What do you want to see in this series and Star Wars going forward? Be sure to hit us up on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram. But when we come back from this, our final break, we're hitting you with two more nerd commendations. Stick around. All right, we're back for our fan favorite segment. Now, Dave, I am super geeked to talk about your nerd commendation because I equally love it. Oh, I'm so glad. Are you caught up through the first three episodes? Uh, first two, not third. Oh my god, the third episode, man. Ah. You're gonna love it. It's all about number one, and it has some really cool revelations. It's a very great character piece. You're gonna like this one, man. Alright, so uh, my nerd commendation this week is for uh, the new Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds, uh, which is... Um, you know, brand new, but goes back into the past. It's technically a spinoff from Star Trek Discovery, uh, and it focus- focuses on Captain Christopher Pike and the crew of the Starship Enterprise uh, about, uh, I would say, a decade before the original Star Trek series featuring Captain Kirk. Uh, you have, uh, of course, Anson Mount coming back uh, from Discovery as Captain Christopher Pike. You have Ethan Peck playing uh, Mr. Spock and Rebecca Romain as... Uh, number one. And uh, these are all characters from the original series that, you know, were previously, um, you know, portrayed in some capacity. Obviously, Spock was there throughout. Um, Both uh, Captain Pike and number one are from the original um, rejected um, Star Trek pilot uh, that was uh, eventually reworked into a really cool little two-part episode of the original series, which uh, I highly recommend. Um, And it's just, I mean, here we are. You have the captain of the Enterprise, Christopher Pike, who during the course of Star Trek Discovery got a glimpse of his future where he's going to be in a horrible accident that is going to leave him not just confined to a wheelchair, but basically, you know, completely incapable of communicating other than in 
light beeps meaning yes or no um and he he fears you know this this development um and is hesitant to return into space but of course there's you know uh, a mission uh his first officer number one una is uh missing after first contact and so he gets back on that horse he literally actually uh he <laughs> he he recruits uh a very shirtless Mr. Spock who's busy uh, getting um, engaged. Let's put it that way. Um, And uh, they fly out into space. And the show is uh, about their continuing adventures on board the Enterprise. Now, what I love about this show is that it is a perfect melding so far of something like um, uh, the original series on Next Generation, which were very much about standalone episodes but has a undercurrent of serialization kind of in the background, like something like Deep Space Nine. So it's not as highly serialized as like Deep Space Nine was, but it's not quite as standalone as the original series. There, you know, there's nice character things happening, um, you know, in the background that sort of carry over from episode to episode. Three episodes of the show have been released so far. Uh, each one focuses on a different character. Uh, the first one is very much a, a Pike story. Uh, the second one is focused on Lieutenant Uhura. No, he or she's just an ensign. Uh, and uh, Or a cadet. Now I'm trying to remember if she was a cadet. Or cadet. Just, ca- just a she's cadet. A, she's ca- Yo, she's a cadet at this point. Uh, also a character from the original series. And then the third episode focuses on number one. And I have to say, this is this is what I've been missing from Star Trek. You know, there's very, very potent stuff here. You know, the, the acting is great. The special effects are fun. You know, Star Trek is in full, you know, uh, force with its social commentary going back even to the original series. It just, it feels the most Star Trek of any Star Trek product in recent years. And that is not a rip against something like, you know, Discovery, for example, which I like a great deal. Um, but this, this, you know, is is something that kind of scratches that original series itch. I have mad love for the original series. You know, it felt a little bit more, um, a little less civilized, I guess is the best way to put it, than what we got with The Next Generation. You know, you had a captain that was, you know, kind of shooting from the hip sometimes. It wasn't always clear, you know, um, if regulations were the right thing to do here. And it just kind of tosses regulations sometimes just to do what's right. Um, and we get that again here with with Christopher Pike and, and his approach to to command. And so this is something that uh, I've been missing a little bit in Star Trek. And so it's very, very nice to see that sort of almost like Wild Westish undercurrent uh, coming back to Star Trek, especially considering it used to be like, you know, it was pitched originally by Roddenberry's like Wagon Train to the Stars, which, you know, is, is awesome. Also, I have to say all the recastings work incredibly well here which brings us you know to the comparison with star wars from earlier in our episode and ethan peck is a very very good younger spock anson mount is a fantastic christopher pike and uh and i have to say rebecca romay knocks it out of the park as number one um it's just all the little recastings we've seen so far on the show where we get younger versions of characters we've seen before um it is just spot on so I don't know what there's not to like about this show. So I'm a big, big fan. Uh, the show has uh, a 10-episode first season, I believe. Uh, it premiered on May 5th. Uh, it should be running through July 7th. And a second season is already in production, which is uh, great news. Check this out. Chris? I, I absolutely adore this show. Um, I, I, I'm so... It's such a great time to be a Star Trek fan. I love Discovery, and I think what you're enjoying about storytelling-wise with the kind of hybrid, serialized, episodic nature was was really, like, introduced in something like Discovery, and where you have, like, a main conflict that is solved within an episode, but then you kind of have the through... Um, the through lines, like, you know, the Red Angel situation uh, in, in the second season of Discovery. Um, so I absolutely love everything. I mean, like, Lower Decks for, like, the just stupid fun of, like, riffing on it. It's something like Robot Chicken Star Wars specials of just, like, divorcing yourself from the self-seriousness of Star Trek that it is sometimes and just having fun with it. Um, but Strange New Worlds is a completely different entity, and I, I love it for everything that it is. And the cast is out of this world. Anson Mount, 
I can't, I mean, what more can you say? It's like, I, I love Star Trek in that it gives us different takes on leadership. You know, you have the literal space cowboy of Jim Kirk. You have the staunch pleated pant stick up his butt Picard. Um, uh, and then you have someone who's really passionate and emboldened and willing to color outside the lines like um, Ben Sisko. And then, you know, I, I see Anson Mounts Pike is kind of like a hybrid mixture of, of a lot of those different leadership styles. The overwhelming thing that I take away from these first two episodes, at least, is he's such a great listener. Um, and he really cares about his crew, his interactions with, um, my new, oh, my, my far away favorite thing of this series is Celia Rose Gooding as Uhura. Absolutely fantastic. His interactions with her, particularly in that second episode of truly listening to her story, um, and her honesty about, she's not sure if Starfleet is her thing. Um, and her, her reasonings for being there. I'm also biased as a xenolinguist uh, fan, so their interactions are, are fantastic. But I love Pike's leadership. He's got like a little bit of uh, improvisational stuff like Kirk, but then he's also this really empathic person like Cisco is. Um, so I absolutely love him. My other, uh, I love Ethan Peck as Spock. I think he nails it. Um, I, I It's really... I just love the the willingness by Star Trek as an entire property to recast these iconic roles. I mean, you think of Leonard Nimoy and what he meant to not only Star Trek, but to science fiction as a whole. And to have the cojones to recast that role time and again and absolutely nail it like this. Um, I love Zachary Quinto's portrayal as well in a different sense. But Ethan Peck, I think, is is, is really fantastic in this role. I love, love La'an Noonien Singh. Christina Chong really brings it. I love her brashness and she's just a badass. And you know how we love our bad, our bad uh, women that really just kick butt. Um, I love uh, Eric Ortegas as well by Listen Navia, like really kind of snarky, smart Alec, like pulling pranks on the crew and then just like showboating her navigational skills. Uh, I know you love this one, Dr. Mabenga. Like somebody said, like just his voice, voice is so soothing, bringing like a deep cut like that from the original series. There's so much to love about this show. And I, I have to go watch the third episode right now. Do it. I'm I'm serious. Uh, great, great stuff for number one. Great stuff for Mbenga in in that episode. Uh, it, it's a fantastic episode. I really like episode three. It's disappointing that there's only ten episodes in the first season of the show <laughs> because I just think it's one of the strongest things that Star Trek has produced in a long time, and I just want more, man. And it's it's really and, fascinating. It's really fascinating too. Sorry to cut you off, but like it's really fascinating to see, um, like Pike knowing his future and like can you really alter that and playing with that storytelling wise and, and how that affects his decision-making? That's a really fascinating thing to watch that develop over the, over the course of the series as well. And you nailed it when it comes to the recasting element of all this. Um, we, yeah, we've had now three different Spocks and both of the recasts were very good. You know, we have, uh, we have had now three different Uhuras and, both recasts of the original were really, really good and had something to add to that character. So, you know, Star Wars, you know, cut it out, you know, be bold, recast some of these roles and, and try to tell new stories that, you know, with these characters, I, I would be there for it. I would be totally there for a post return of the Jedi Luke Skywalker miniseries or something where he goes and tries to like, you know, find Jedi artifacts or something like something like that. I would be totally there for, um, as long as, you know, as long as he's not made out of bits and bites, that's all I'm looking for. <laughs> and, and, and I, I did say this on social media, like if, if that's truly how they feel at Lucasfilm, then the silver lining for me is for the love of everything that is holy, tell new stories with new characters. Then if you're that scared of recasting, then give us new stories with new characters. You have, that's the thing I love about, um, you know, Star Trek from its inception, IDIC, infinite diversity, infinite characters. I, I, I hope I got that right. But you get what I'm saying. Uh, is, is 
like it's outer freaking space. You have so many possibilities and limiting it to Tatooine and, you know, Coruscant and like three different planets with one family is so boring. Like tell new stories then if you're going to be too scared to recast. That's exactly right. Yeah, I totally agree with that, man. All right, what's your nerd commendation for this week, Chris? Dude, like I'm I'm reading a lot of DC right now. Um it's it's I'm reading a lot of DC right now. I'm making the most of that DC Universe Infinite, but like even more um more recent stuff that's not quite on there yet. But um my nerd commendation this week is Trial of the Amazons. Of course, you know our dear friend of the show, Stephanie Williams, what she's done. Um, with Nubia and the Amazons, the Coronation Special, and now another mini series for Nubia, bringing that wonderful, wonderful character that was so underserved um, for so many decades back to the forefront, where she is like the it girl at DC right now, is fascinating. But that also brought me as a vehicle into the first Wonder Woman crossover in over a decade, like 15 years. So Trial of the Amazons is fantastic. Um, I have, we've got a reading order that we'll post here in the show notes as well, but um, series is written uh, with a fantastic writing team, Becky Cloonan, Michael Conrad, who worked together on the Wonder Woman title, the Diana title, Joel Jones, who does Wonder Girl, Vida Ayala, and Stephanie Williams, who, of course, uh, co-wrote uh, Nubia and the Amazons, the first series, and then art by Joelle Jones, who's, I, I absolutely love Joelle Jones' work, anything that she does with Yara Flora, uh, Elena Casagrande, Laura Braga, Skylar Prattridge, Aletha Martinez, um, Jordi Belair, Rosie Kempe, uh, Paulina Gunnishow, um, I, I, there's just so much to love about this series. Um, it basically tells the story of the three tribes of the Amazons coming together for like this trial, um, to see who will guard doom's doorway now. Um, because Nubia has now stepped into this new role as the queen of the Amazons. And now someone that, that, that leaves a slot open to guard doom's doorway. Um, so they each select a champion from each one of the tribes, including the Escasita tribe, which is a recent development in the Wonder Girl series and in, in, in Yara Floor. Um, and then there, it turns into like a murder mystery. I don't want to spoil it, but there is a big time murder that shakes the foundation of all three tribes. And then you have, um, you know, like a murder mystery, like a whodunit in the midst of you know, this, this trial to see who will be selected, um, as, as the guardian of, of Doom's doorway. Um, absolutely fantastic, um, story about like sisterhood and relationships and bridging differences. You have very three, uh, three very different, um, tribes and the Escasita, the Bonamignol and, and, um, the Amazons. So it's, it's very interesting to see how they kind of come together from very disparate, uh, disparate parts and very, um, a lot of animosity taking place at the, at the early onset of this series. And then they kind of come together at the end in spite of all the events that take place here, but I highly recommend it. Um, great, great storytelling, the art, particularly by Joelle Jones, what she does with the wonder girl stuff absolutely spellbinding and i i can't my biggest takeaway in addition to nubia who i already loved uh yara floor is the breakaway star at dc comics and they need to continue to feature her because uh, between her and my other new love jessica cruz it's a latina mommy world and i love the both of them so definitely go read trial the amazons i'm going to go back and read all of wonder girl now because yara is a star yeah, I'm here for this, man. Uh, I will freely admit I've kind of fallen out of the Wonder Woman world a little bit, but I, def I definitely need to come back. Uh, and of course, the reason this is the first Wonder Woman crossover in like 15 years is because I think the last Wonder Woman crossover was uh, Amazon's Attack, which <laughs> probably stands as one of the worst uh, crossovers in the history of the known universe. So uh, yeah, uh, this can only be better, man. So I'm excited to check it out. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for listening. Be sure to stick around next week for the second annual Nerdy Awards. Um, we 
Thank you for your support. If you like what you hear, be sure to hit that like and subscribe button on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a five-star rating and review, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the TuneIn Radio app, or nerdbyword.com. And find us on social media because we want to hear from you. We uh, can be found on uh, Twitter, and, Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword or individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.